whoever they were talking to said something they didn't like, and they just smashed it on his head right there in the middle of the bar. Welcome, Ben, to the World XT Podcast. It's been, it's been a while since the last time that we really saw each other. You were being the best server at our favorite local bar. Now you're the real estate agent with the hat. How's it going, man? Good. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Pleasure being here. Um, yeah, doing really well. All right. And for this might part might seem a little rushed because I was an idiot and I forgot to hit record. So we're about 10 minutes in before we realized that. But basically what we were talking about was... So we can go through it a little bit quicker, but basically some of the stuff that I had asked Ben was, so he was bartending for a while, and I had mentioned on the last episode with Zane that that had been something that I had been kind of considering on and off for a few years, and my off time, maybe pick up a shift at not necessarily a bar like Jay's, but maybe one that's a little bit less busy, because um, I don't know if I could deal with all the drunk people yelling at me for for different things, but to kind of go through the responsibilities and what it's like to be a bartender in a situation like that. And also the things that maybe you don't see so often, uh, the things that are kind of not necessarily behind the scenes, but when it's less busy, kind of what goes on down there. Yeah. So I think bartending is a great thing to pick up if that's something you're interested in doing. Um, A lot of places are looking for help right now, but the more availability you have, the better it is for them. Um, Now, that was back when they could pick and choose. Um, so, I mean, you could possibly get a shift somewhere if you only want to work once or twice a week. Um, but it's definitely better when you have more flexibility. Um, in terms of the stuff you see when nobody else is around, I think the biggest thing in terms of um, that would probably be the regulars. Like, not the regulars that come in every weekend, but the regulars that come in every day. Always at the same time, always drink the same amount always spend the same amount and generally tip up the same amount, but you, you, it makes you wonder what they do. I mean, you open the bar at 11 AM and somebody's waiting at the door to come in to drink five drinks and then go about their day or even more. And they just sit there for hours. So it kind of gets you wondering why, why do they do that? What, what's going on in their life to where one, they can afford that and two, they don't have to work during the week. <laughs> you never know. Gotcha. I, I've often heard that a bartender, like they moonlight as this therapist. Is that the case in those situations more? Or have you ever experienced that? And in which, like, if that's the case, how you kind of just listen more than offer advice? Or does it just depend on where the conversation takes you? Yeah, it really does depend on where the conversation takes you. Um, and some some people are different than others. But yeah, you're definitely you definitely moonlight as a therapist. Um, and when you're in when you're in the bar and it's super busy, that's not you being a therapist. But if if it's just a few people at the bar and they just get to talk in and you get to listen in because you got nothing else to do, um, yeah, you definitely you definitely hear the stories, you definitely hear the problems, and sometimes they're looking for advice, sometimes they're looking for just somebody to sit there and listen to them. Gosh, does that ever weigh on you? If you hear some like horrible stuff or do you just learn over time to kind of let it roll off you? Um, I didn't get the therapist role as defined in my experience. I went from mm-hmm. serving to managing pretty quickly. I didn't do too much bartending. Um, 
So I never really got that level. I was more like the therapist to my coworkers rather than to the, to the clients. Um, but you, you do hear a lot. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different people in the industry. So in, on the client or the, the coworker side, there's a lot of, there are a lot of issues with substance abuse. There's a lot of, a lot of that you see with the, the, the coworkers, sometimes even more than the clients. I mean, or customers, customers come in, they'll drink. Um, but you don't necessarily always get to that level with them. And generally they're not there confessing their sins. Um, yeah. I mean, the level of stuff you hear is whether or not somebody cheated on somebody or whether or not they're about to break up with their significant other, mm. at least in my experience. Yeah. I feel like some of those stories get kind of funny. Yeah, some of them are ridiculous. I mean, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but uh, there are definitely times where somebody will be talking to somebody uh, or a, a bartender will be talking to a customer. And then when they're done with the conversation, they'll come over to their other coworker and just laugh about whatever the situation was. Or <laughs> Not that we're all talking shit about people, but. <laughs> no, of course not. One of the things that was interesting to me about Jay specifically and how you personally went about things was like whenever we would come in, I'm sure there was, you were like this with other other friends from Mary Washington as well, but you would always make sure right away when we came in, like we never had to wait at the bar for drinks because you were always able to kind of help us out. Was that a function of you being a manager and having more freedom when it was busy to kind of pick and choose or like I know at some other restaurants people have like their section, like they got this table, this table, and this table. Um, or was that just a function of it being laid at the bar and you're just, everyone's tries, just trying to get help to whoever needs it or both? A little bit of both. I mean, as a server, if, if your friends come in, you're, you're generally the one that gets that table. Like they're either going to request you or you're going to tell your, your coworkers like, Hey, those are my friends. Like, let me take the table. Um, and I mean, unless your coworkers absolutely hate you, <laughs> they're going to give it to you. Um, on the, on the managing side, I mean, yeah, I get the freedom to do um, what I want in terms of serving people um, in, in rush scenarios. Now you still got to make sure you're not getting in your bartender's way or your server's way. But if your friends are at the end of the line and you want to help them out, yeah, you could do that. Yeah. It was really nice that you did that. <laughs> and we made sure you knew it. You had to tip well, of course. Yeah. When you became a manager, was that a weird for, not for you personally, but for you with the, the relationships with your coworkers and, and those people, because you transitioned from server to manager fairly quickly. Uh, other people get like, and generally you're like, oh, I've been a server for 10 years or whatever. And that wasn't, that wasn't the case for you. And I assume that you were probably younger than most of the other people that you were working with. So how did that transition go? And what was, like, did you actively try and get into management quickly? Is that how that kind of worked? And then how did the relationships with your coworkers, like, end up changing, like, with that transition? Yeah. So my goal when I went into the restaurant industry was I wanted to learn everything I could to eventually own my own place. Um, that's changed a little bit with COVID. Uh, <laughs> I can get into that a little more later, but um, yeah. So 
when I started out, I was serving. Um, I was serving, and I had done a little bit of bartending before I started at Jay's. So I did that for, I would say, serving and bartending combined about three years. And then when I got to Jay's, I was there for a year, and then they bumped me up to management. But I had expressed that when I first started, like, I'm looking to move up. Um, and I figured it would be a great place to start in terms of just learning the business. Um, so once that happened, there definitely was a change. Uh, a few coworkers I remember definitely had some issues with it. Um, but you just got to, you got to make sure one, okay, is if this coworker is somebody you care about, well, work it out. If it's not, then it doesn't matter. Like that might sound cold, but the that's um, life that's that's it you know um but all the ones that i'm still friends with all the ones that i still talk to we're cool um <laughs> they they respected me once i started um maybe took a little time to get used to it but we got along i didn't ask them to do ridiculous shit all the time so <laughs> that helps um i didn't blame them for stuff that was out of their control so yeah it really depends on how you manage as well as where you started yeah absolutely i feel like it's hard a little bit difficult to manage that transition from being part of the like part of the like team so to speak to then you're in charge of them i had to go through that as well um not too long ago then i feel like as long as you're genuine and you don't micromanage and you kind of just not let them do what they want, but just you're kind of just there, like making sure that things are going smoothly without being in everyone's hair. I feel like the transition can go pretty smoothly. It's, I think it's when people feel pressure to make sure everything is right all the time that that's when conflict arises. So I feel mm-hmm. like for you being kind of like in the mindset that you were of wanting to move up, that you were already prepared for to basically not panic to control everything which I feel like helps probably a lot. And I I could tell from the way, from the way you were during rush, like you're just kind of like, you're just kind of chilling in the corner a little bit, unless you were helping somebody like you weren't in people's faces doing this or that, which I thought was cool. That was admirable to be honest, because during rush, it's very easy to get agitated when things don't go well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you got a hundred people in your bar, you got, 50 tickets waiting to be made that could be 50 drinks that could be 100 drinks like and it's just it takes that much time you know it's the the slow what is that phrase um uh slow is smooth smooth is smooth is fast Yeah. yeah so just do the do the work do it slow take your time with it i mean don't go like a sloth but yeah, of course take your time with it make sure you do it right and it'll be it'll be fine 100 percent. if you do it right the first time then you don't have to go back and do it again exactly. um i actually had that situation we were i was in new, or- new orleans like a month ago and we were with jenna's co-workers and he ordered a manhattan and i didn't know what it was but it didn't matter to me because i wasn't making the drinks and the bartender comes back with like what I think happened was so for those listening, it's like a specific type of martini and he came back in just like a cocktail glass and Jenna's coworker was like, what, what, like what? Like he was very confused. So what I personally think happened was they made the drink 
and they just put it in the wrong cup because they were busy. And so then it became this whole headache of like, okay, well then they came back with this one and then the waiter came back and said, well, my manager just made it, but he ran into somebody and the, the, like the cup fell and the glass broke. And I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. Like if you just do it right the first time, then you don't have to run into yeah. it. And then, so he owned a restaurant. So I asked him, I was like, does that make you more lenient? Like our understanding of that? He was like, hell no. <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, there are different schools of thought with that. I mean, if, if you're out of glasses and I mean, first of all, if you're out of glasses for any type of drink, you don't have enough glasses, but yeah. you're out of glasses. You got to make the drink. I mean, a Manhattan in a, in a martini glass is the correct way to make it, but there've definitely been ones in, in rocks glasses. So it's really, it, it can be based on the restaurant. Um, there's been more leniency and more, um, what is it? Fluidity or adaptability for it um, mm-hmm. more recently with certain drinks, but definitely uh, if you're trying to go with that authenticness, putting it, making sure the whole cocktail is con- cohesive, even to the glass is definitely the, the best way to go. Yeah, absolutely. I think if they, if they had come out and said like, Hey, we ran out of martini glasses, like this is it, then maybe it would have been different, but the customer service side of things was very, it looked very disorganized. Um, so I think that's why he had the reaction he did. Personally, I don't care too much what kind of glass my drink is in, as long as it's the right one. Like at the end of the day, you drink it out of a like a cylinder type thing with a handle. Like so, so I'm yeah. kind of like I'm kind of lax, but I definitely understand why people would feel that way. And and there's all different levels of a restaurant. You know, you got you got casual, you got. Um, luxury if you will uh <laughs> or very high end so i mean if somebody's running a restaurant and they want it to be as authentic as possible they're going to have issues if something's not in the right glass granted i don't know if you need to make sure every single time like if you're that nitpicky about it um yeah that helps your brand um but once if something bad happens isn't going to sink everything um, no of course but yeah, there's different levels. You go into a bar and order a drink. I mean, most of those cocktails, I mean, if the bartender doesn't know how to make that, they don't they don't know how to bartend. But <laughs> most of those cocktails, people kind of do their own thing with them on a, a lot now. So, yeah, that makes sense for sure. So, I'm sure you've got some crazy bar stories. <laughs> do you? Yeah. A give few. us a give us a few of the good ones. Okay, let's see. Um, I remember one time. I don't remember if it was a fight night or not, but I mean, before before I started at at Jay's, there were a lot of fights there. Um, by the time I started there, they had definitely gone down. Uh, so they. Although when I started there, they would still seem to have to throw somebody out every weekend. <laughs> so Every time. Yeah, there's still issues. But, I mean, I liked the work. I liked the, the job. But, I mean, I think there was one time somebody was talking to their significant other and had a glass in their hand. And whoever they were talking to said something they didn't like. And they just smashed it on his head. 
right there in the middle of the bar. <laughs> Did it knock him out? No, I don't think so. But I mean, broke the glass, which is hard enough. Oh my so gosh. we had to get them. I think we we actually had her trespassed, and um, we gave the cops all the info for the uh, for the uh, assault charge. But I don't know what happened to that. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> so there are others like that. I mean. There are a few times you you had fights. There was a few in the bathrooms, a few just around. I mean, I can think of at least three times where I'm walking through the crowd and somebody's about to start a fight in front of me. So I had to back off with like six six to eight drinks on a tray and try and get somebody's attention so that I don't break the drop the tray, but also these people stop fighting. <laughs> yeah. Um, there were times where you had to clean. I mean, you have to clean throw up all the time, but oh, like, sure, yeah. Times you have to clean blood off the floor, like just just the kind of atmosphere, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know if those are the crazy stories you're looking for, but <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't know. Smashing a glass on somebody's head is kind of that's up there, especially if it's mm-hmm. right in the middle of the bar, too. Yeah, like didn't even try to hide it. <laughs> Jeez. How difficult is it to weave through a crowd of drunk people carrying a tray of drinks? It's difficult. I mean, it helps when you're not below everybody. I mean, I'm six foot two. Not that that really matters, but it helps when you can hold the the tray above everybody. So you're not necessarily bumping into people with it. Um, But it's still, it's still difficult, especially when you, you, you still got to tell, tell people to move out of the way. Like, yeah. (laughs) I feel like, though, like if you hold crowd. it up here and somebody like bumps your arm and like yeah i mean you usually do that just to get over something yeah um, so you don't really want to hold it up there yeah. the whole time but at least it gives you the op- the ability to do that so you don't have to knock into somebody yeah fair. all right we won't tell anyone did you have you ever dropped the tray before yeah <laughs> totally <laughs> i don't remember how many but i can think of like once or twice i dropped it um most i think i dropped it and broke a glass once but i could have been more um most of the time you just spill the drinks and you have to go remake them or get the bartenders to remake them yeah Uh, all right so you said you wanted to get into management because you wanted to own own your own restaurant obviously you're very you're very customer service oriented i would say as evidenced by your choices of career and job thus far in your life tell us a little bit about so is is the end goal still to own the restaurants or are you like you're enjoying the real estate or kind of what got you into the real estate is not really a customer service industry, but kind of is. So we'll, for lack of a better term, what got you into the, like the customer service world or the working with people communication sort of world? Um, well, that's a good question. I, I think that growing up I had some, like I, I could socialize with people, but I guess I didn't make like lasting connections with a lot of people. So uh, once I got out of high school and started going to college, I wanted to branch out a bit and get become more social. Um, and so I, there were a few different jobs I did. I, <laughs> I don't know if you ever got those letters in the mail with from Vector Marketing Corporation. Yeah, once or um, twice. <laughs> so I actually did that. I uh, sold Cutco for a few years. Um, and that really did help me get out of my shell a bit. Uh, 
allowed me to be more social. And then um, I just went into restaurants. I really wanted to own my own restaurant. Like I don't, I liked, I liked the industry. I liked the history of it. Um, I like the, like how, how is liquor made? How is beer made? Like all that kind of stuff, even wine. Um, and then being a, I think it's just being a host, like being the, the person that hosts the party is something I've always liked. Um, so that's really what drove me to get into it. Uh, with the pandemic, I've shifted my focus a little bit. Um, with having a, everything shut down for two months and not being able to, to work really changed my idea of whether or not that kind of business was as recession proof as I thought. Um, I think liquor stores are a little bit more recession proof, but <laughs> the most, <laughs> um, that's really where I shifted from direct ownership, uh, or at least that direct path. Um, and I wanted to do real estate for a while before I switched. Like I was, I went from Jay's and then once I was there, I actually left in 2020, right. As everything started to reopen, um, and went to a catering job for a catering company and then actually got laid off in February. So figured why not, you know, I felt trapped at that company. It wasn't what I wanted to do. So figured why not do this and see where it goes. Fair enough. Before we jump full into the real estate, a lot of people open restaurants because they're cooks and they like food. But that's not the case for you. Like you could open like a distillery or a winery or a brewery or something like that, but you wanted a restaurant. Why? Why is that? Um, I mean, I think I still do like food, but I don't consider myself a cook. Um, I mean, when I was at when I was working in the restaurant industry as a manager, it's it's definitely something you you actually learn to do, even if it's just on the job training um, or on the fly. But and I enjoyed it, but um, I don't know if I would be out there creating my own recipes or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted the customer service side of it. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe I thought that restaurants would be a better idea, but honestly, I'd love to own a distillery. Like that's definitely in the plans. Um, and be able to create something with that kind of history uh, is cool to me. Um, my dad does a lot of uh, historical tracking of our family and found that one of our ancestors owned a, uh, he, he was a liquor and beers rep of some sort back in the early 1900s. And then right when prohibition started, he bought a bakery. So that was a good choice. <laughs> we thought that that bakery was a front for something. We don't have any actual proof, but it's a cool kind of like historical thing that we'd like to think about. Um, for those of you who don't know, you need yeast for, for beer. Mm-hmm. So a bakery is the perfect cover. A hundred percent. Your own, your own beer. Yeah, man. He was up to something for sure. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. What a guy. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I guess it's good that you, that you don't know. Cause it means he never got caught. So yeah. <laughs> Did he continue doing the, uh, the beer and liquor stuff after prohibition got repealed? Uh, we didn't see any, uh, I don't, I don't know. Um, I didn't check that far, but, uh, the only records we have are the, of the, um, the bakery. Gotcha. Fair enough. That's a cool story. I'd make the most of that. Like, yeah, he's working for Al Capone. What a guy. 
Yeah. I have a whole bar designed after it. So hopefully you'll see it out there someday. That'd be great. Yeah, man. Like once, once COVID dies down a little bit more and if you're, if you're able to do that, definitely would love, would love to come see it. Ah, that'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. All right. Let's jump right into the real estate stuff. So a lot of um, the audience for this, at least as far as I'm aware uh, is around our age. So most of us have not bought a house yet, but are looking to soon. Um, what, well, let me back up first to get your real estate license. What does that, what does that entail? Um, so that's a 60 hour course. You can do it online. You got to take a test on that online course, and then you got to go into a a testing facility. They're called PSI. It's one of the companies that, that does them very like, you got to put everything in this bag. This bag gets locked. Like you don't get any kind of, um, access to anything other than what you're supposed to get so that you can't cheat. Um, yeah, no Google. Yeah. Right. (laughs) You can't, it's not an open book. Um, the pass rate, I mean, it's a 60% pass rate on your first time for the for the licensing requirements, which isn't that low, um, but can cause some worry. Uh, so uh, thankfully, I passed it on my first time. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I was I was worried for a little bit. But uh, yeah, it was it was pretty smooth. Um, they say you could do the 60 hour course in like two weeks, but I mean, that's a lot. So it took me about a month or so to do it um, before I was able to take the test. Um, Gosh. And then, all right, so you take the test, you get the license, and now you've got to find a broker to work with. So Mm -hmm. how how did that process work for you? Was it just like applying for other other jobs? Yeah, so chances are, I mean, the second you get licensed, you're going to, you're going to get swarmed by brokers. Like, it doesn't cost them anything to hire you on. So they, because you're commission-based for the most part, Mm. Um, some places like Redfin or other brokers that, that don't charge as much of a commission, um, they'll pay a small salary and then give you a a small amount per transaction that you do. Um, But you have to do a lot of volume to really make a living. Um, Whereas you could do the same, you could do le- like half, if not less volume and still make a great living as a realtor if you're doing it all in commission and you're getting that, that full commission. Um, so with that, um, I was applying for random jobs before I decided and like set my sights on real estate and I came across one thing on Indeed and submitted my application. And then a month later, they gave me a call and I was like, sure, let's do it. So very similar, but a lot, a lot of the times, if you're not already with a broker, by the time you um, finish your test, they'll, they'll come out of the weeds. Like <laughs> they're everywhere. Is it, is it, do they do that because there's a shortage or just because they pull in a percentage also? So the more people that they have, they just bring in more. Yeah. They pull a percentage. So anytime, so it's not every broker has the same split, they call it, but 
anytime you sell a house, you have a certain amount of money that you have to pay to your brokerage. Um, and the, that's that amount sometimes gets capped at a certain level, um, depending on the broker. And then after that, you keep the rest of your commissions. So it's really, they can get an extra 30 grand to, to more a year based on the number of agents that they have on there. Gotcha. Now they do that because they provide a service. It's not that they're just doing that because they want to milk you for money, but no, of course they cover your insurance. They make sure that your stuff is their T's and I's are, are there. <laughs> yeah. Crossed and dotted. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. Interesting. Sounds like, I mean, so then to be a, a broker, you, you need like a separate license, I would assume. And yeah, so you have to be a, gotcha. a salesperson for three years. You have to have a certain number of transactions. You have to be active. And um, I believe you have to have a certain number of transactions. Uh, but you have to be active. And it's another like 150-hour course you have to do. Hmm. So a lot more a lot more coursework, but a lot more liability. So for you then, because you you're the type that would want to I feel like do that. Is it still you'd rather do the distillery stuff or you kind of, you kind of umming and awing about which one you want to do or either one or both eventually? I mean, potentially both. Um, I do like the idea of running businesses. I mean, (laughs) I was a business major, so like that's something I've always been interested in. Um, uh, I don't know if I'd want to go into a broker level thing at any time re- like soon. Obviously, I can't do it in the next three years, but I don't know sure. if that's really where I want to direct my energy or focus. Um, but it's something to consider. Gotcha. All right. I want to move on to where I was going to go. So most of the audience for this is about our age. You're obviously very in tune with the market and the goings on and um, – like how things are working out for first time home buyers. And I suspect I want to ask you about all your reels. And I suspect that the reasons are kind of intertwined for these two questions, why you're doing the reels. Is that, is that an accurate statement? Yeah, they're, they're connected. All um, right. So go ahead. Tell us, tell us a little bit about the, like if you were, cause in, when we were messaging, you asked me that question and I figured that you had something in mind, a spiel in mind. So Go ahead. So um, I do want to let everybody know before we get a little farther into this, if you don't have a house yet, it's not like, don't stress about it. Like, Especially with us being our age, the average age for a first time home buyer in the DC Metro area this year was 33. So if, if you're younger than that, don't, don't worry about it. If you're older than that, don't worry about it. The average age for all home buyers in the DC metro area was like 40. So you got some time, take it slow, figure it out. Um, in terms of the reels, I, I like to educate people. I like to bring value. Uh, and I want to do that in a way that's entertaining without taking too much time. Um, I, it's, it's difficult to do an entertaining thing about subjects that are sometimes a little boring, um, but I'm, I'm learning with it. It's taken a lot of, a lot of my time to do those reels. Um, 
but I'm learning with it and I'm enjoying it and I want to get that exposure. So it's kind of hand in hand, like both bringing value and getting exposure. Gotcha. They're very helpful. Not going to lie. If you've not seen them, well, we'll put the link down in the description to Ben's Instagram, but basically what he does is he's got a term of the day and it's related to real estate, obviously, but he goes into a short little description of what it is. Some of the terms I knew I had heard of, but didn't know what they were. Other ones I'd never even heard of. So for me, they're quite helpful anyways, but for, this is like a real short question before, before we get into, into some other stuff, but do you, how do you pick your term of the day? Do you have just like a randomizer? Like <laughs> a little bit, I have a booklet that I just look at and I'm like, Oh, I haven't done this one yet. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I feel like that's how these things go. Most of the time people are like, do you have a formula? You're like, no, I just pick one. It's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So in terms of the market, cause I think you've probably heard this. A lot of people our age, have been, oh, the housing market's really high. I don't want to buy right now. Mm-hmm. What, what are you seeing from, like what, like, what are you seeing from the market in terms of, is it wise to wait to, is it better to get in early or what, like, what are you seeing? Like, what's the situation from your perspective? Because obviously from a purely economic perspective, it's a little bit different, but you're in the home market specifically. So what's kind of, mm-hmm. what's kind of going on with that the last couple of years and where, where are we? So to really get into that, we have to go back to 2008. I think that's what everybody's biggest fear is. Um, housing, a lot of housing prices are above the levels they were at in 2008, which is really stoking a lot of fears for people buying right now. Um, I think the key thing to know and understand is that it's not 2008. Um, 2008's crisis was related to the fact that lenders were lending to anybody. They had what they called ninja loans, no job, no income, or no income, no job. And they were just lending to anybody. And then they were taking those loans and selling them to banks and investors and those investors thought that those loans were good loans they were not good loans so once those loans defaulted everybody's investment in those loans crashed and that's why we had all these people lose their homes also they had a lot of what are called adjustable rate mortgages where they got a really low intro intro rate and then it jacked up once that intro period was over. So they could pay, be paying double or triple what they had been paying before. Uh, and most people couldn't afford that. A lot of people had multiple loans on multiple properties that they couldn't afford. So they, that, that really caused the crash in the first place. What we're seeing now, partly because of that, one, lenders aren't doing that anymore. They have all these different regulations they have to go through and they're not lending to anybody unless they know that person can pay it back. Um, so we're not going to see any crash related to the lending side that we saw in 2008. Um, the, one of the things that we've been seeing is that the housing supply is down, um, because of 2008 in 2008 and 2009, 2010, nobody was lending for homes being built. So the number of homes that were built for the last decade has been half the la the the number of homes that were built for the previous four decades like 
if it was 100 for the 40 years before 08, then it was 50 for the previous 10 years since 08. So we have this huge shortage nationwide and we don't see that recovering for a few more years. Once it does, there may be a correction. It may balance itself out, but with that and then COVID COVID one kept people in their houses and then also made people realize how small their houses were. So you had half of the people who were like, Oh, we're not going to move yet. And then the other half like, Oh, we need to get out of here because I can't keep working right next to my partner <laughs> in our one bedroom apartment. Um, and then that created its own shortage, which caused the, the prices to go up as well. Um, and then with the way work office work is being done right now, it's, it'll be interesting to see whether or not going back into a city is as, as um, beneficial as it was. If everybody's, able to work from home or has more flexible work options, they're more inclined to go for a longer commute. Mm. All those things make sense. So a great movie. If you want to like fully understand what happened in 08 is the big short uh, with what, well, who was in it? Ryan Gosling. Um, I'm forgetting his name right now. Steve Carell, uh, Brad Pitt, a few other people. Um, that really gets into depth about the the crisis and you'll gotcha. see why it's, it's a bit different than it was. Um, but <laughs> gotcha. Well, that's good that we're not going to have a giant crash anytime soon. Hopefully. Um, I think, you know, who Matt Taibbi is. No, he's a, he's a reporter, like independent reporter. He did a lot of work on the 08, like the crash in 08. I think he's got a book out on it. It's also, I've heard is very good. I haven't read it probably should but um okay so you mentioned uh kind of a price correction at what point like so for the people that are worried about potentially buying because they think it'll be like 08 so we know the the lending regulations are more strict now so that won't be that type of situation but mm-hmm. even a, like a market correction that would cause some problems, wouldn't it? Because I would, I would think that stuff closer to the cities would end up dropping a little bit just because of what we were saying about the work from home situation. So I feel like people are just very unsure. And so mm. they don't want to sink $500,000 into something that next year will be worth two fifty. So nobody believes it's going to go down, down that low. I mean, well, if there's a correction, it'll be, but yeah, yeah, I get it, but it'll be a small correction uh, because the, the, the biggest thing we're seeing right now is the supply. We don't have any. So houses are being sold before they're being built. Um, houses are being sold before they're even on the market. Like <laughs> there's, there's still a lot of competition in the market right now. Um, so we don't see that correction coming anytime soon, at least not in one that, things would lose, lose half their values. I mean, I don't see that happening ever. Uh, the, the one thing to keep in mind though, even those people that bought at the peak of like 06 or 07 or 08 before the market crashed, um, almost all of them, if not all of them, have made that money back in terms of their home value. Like sure. that, that home has 
reappreciated back to either the price they bought it at, if not more, um, since then. And when you look at home ownership, looking at home ownership over the course of the loan period really helps you understand whether or not this could be a good investment. Because if you're looking at a 30 year fixed mortgage, there's never like you could look at every single house over the past 30 years. There's never been a time where that house didn't appreciate. Yeah. So even if it corrects for the first few years, or even if there's a slight dip at some point over the length of the time that you own that property, like that's, that's going to be a blip. It's that's, that's like your retirement account account going down a few, a few hundred bucks or a few thousand dollars and then coming back the next year, you know, it's the stock market going down and then coming back up. Um, so it's not something that I think people should really be worried about. Um, in really in any way, like, yeah, it's important to know. Yeah. One of the biggest things is houses appreciate every year. So whether that appreciation is small or whether that appreciation is big, they keep going up. So if you have the money to buy now, and I don't mean buying it and being house poor, I mean, having the money to buy now, um, then genuinely figure it out and see if it's something you want to do because it's only going to get more expensive. Yeah. So when you say, so do you have a general rule of thumb for like, can, when you say, can you actually afford to buy it? Like, do you have a rule of thumb when you sit down with a client and like, you're like, Hey, maybe this is outside of your, your range because you're only making X and the how the mortgage is going to be Y do you have sort of a general rule of thumb for or advice for people who are looking to buy for the first time? If you're looking to buy for the first time, uh, advice-wise, um, one, talk to a lender. They're going to be able to give you what you can afford, how much you can afford, and they'll make sure that everything is is there and everything's good. Um, they'll be able to do a better job of that. If you're looking at a house, though, and you want to say, okay – how much would I realistically need to be able to buy this house or how much would I realistically need to start house shopping? Um, whatever the price of the house is, take 10% and assume you need that much cash to purchase that house. Hmm. That would cover, that would cover a 3% down payment. That'll cover your 3% closing costs. That'll cover your roughly 1% EMD, which is your earnest money deposit. And that'll allow you to one cover your um, inspectors and your appraisers, as well as having a little bit left over to do whatever changes you want to do when you get in the property, like painting or fixing a faucet or something. Gotcha. Is so I've heard mixed things about down payments before. Sometimes, like I've heard that the higher the better, because then you're got less like total interest on the mortgage. I've also heard that if it's a little bit lower, then you have more flexibility. If rates go lower, like interest rates, what is sort of, how does that work? So again, um, I have to preface this with talking to a lender really helps and will really solve these kinds of issues. If you have any like super in-depth questions, Um, I can say that the the, the amount of down payment is generally ranges from three to 20%. Um, 
you can get a 3% down on a conventional loan. Uh, there are different types of loans. Some of them actually go down to zero. So if you have a VA loan or a USDA loan, you can get 0% down. Um, those processes are different, and sometimes those take longer, but it is possible. Um, the thing to keep in mind is what is it that you can afford? If, if you go in at 20% 20, 20 down, um, then you don't pay PMI. And you'll What's get a better PMI? interest rate. Private mortgages, sir. Private mortgage insurance. Sorry. Um, so they basically, if if you pay, if you're doing three percent down, um, or five percent down, anything less than twenty percent down, chances are you're going to pay private mortgage insurance, which is basically a way for them to cover your riskiness um, by charging you more money a month. <laughs> um, but it allows you to still get into a property for less down. You don't necessarily need as much cash on hand. Um, and it would just get folded into your monthly. Um, the, and again, a lender is going to get really into this. There are definitely benefits of going 3%. There are definitely benefits of going more. But if you get approved for a, a loan at 3% down and it's a $250,000 loan, which means you're putting down off the top of my head, like five grand, six grand. Um, that means if you went to 20% down, you're only adding an extra, the, the extra 17%. So it'd be like, your, you'd put down like 50 grand or something. Yeah. So I think I did this with the wrong numbers because I'm not being able to do it in my head, but no, you're good. It, it, it like the difference in purchasing power doesn't necessarily change in that down payment. Um, lender will be able to explain that better, but like they'll prove you. I'll, I'll put it this way: the loan amount won't wouldn't necessarily change. So at three percent down, they're giving you a loan for two hundred fifty thousand dollars. At twenty percent down, they're still giving you a loan for two hundred fifty thousand dollars. But because you have more cash down the amount of house you can afford is higher. Mm. Does that make sense? So it wouldn't go. So like they still give you the loan for the, for the two fifty, but you're just paying back more of it up front basically. So like they still loan you the two fifty, but if you put down 20%, you're just paying 20% of the two fifty that they already gave you versus the 3%. No. So they'll still no? give you that two fifty. So it's like, I mean, the exact numbers are a little off because the down payment is included in that. But say say you get a loan for $250,000 mm -hmm. um, and you're doing 3% down, that comes to, we'll say five, $6,500 mm -hmm. um, or $7,500. And the that gets factored into that loan amount. So the loan they're actually giving you is 250,000 minus 7,500 or whatever that 3% is. I'm, mm -hmm. Again, not doing math in my head. Um, and then that gives you your total loan amount. If you're doing the same, the same thing, but with 20% down, you're at $50,000 mm -hmm. that you're putting in. So the loan amount could stay at, 
um, whatever 250 minus the 3% is. And then you're adding another 17% to the amount that you can pay. So your mm. 250 in terms of house price goes up to 300 or close to that. 298, I guess. Gotcha. Because they're loaning you the same amount of money, but you had more cash total. So maybe if you don't know the answer, that's okay. But I'm just curious now. So why, like, why wouldn't they just loan you less if you paid down more? It's really dependent on the lender. Um, sometimes they'll do it that way. Again, like the lenders, the, the, uh, the end all be all for anything mortgage related. Mm-hmm. Um, I can advise, I can try and help through, but that's very dependent on the lender. Sometimes gotcha. they'll do it that way. Sometimes they won't. Yeah. It's a totally different world. Two worlds mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. in one. And, and as a, as an agent, I can't claim to like be the educator, be the knowledge person on those things. Like I can't, I can't do something that's not within my sure. uh, realm. Sure. You know? No, of course. That was more just a curiosity thing. I know we got a little bit in the weeds, but it's just like, yeah, it's part of it. All right. So you, oh, you're doing another, um, you just did a first time home buyer seminar. Was it uh, at the time of recording yesterday? So today's Thursday. Yeah. So Wednesday, how did that go? It was good. Um, we had a few people there, uh, went through the process and uh, enjoyed it. So I'm going to start it up again uh, next year, probably early to mid-January and uh, advertise it more online and see if we can get some more people in. Sounds good. Do you have a, so give us a little bit of a, I guess, a quick sales pitch. Somebody wants to go, what are they going to get out of it? You'll get the whole buying process, like from start to finish, how long it'll take, uh, what to look for, who to talk to, um, the estimated costs of different things, and the full timeline from when you start looking at homes or when you start talking to a real estate agent to when you'll be in your new home. Gotcha. You got, yes, I can ask. Well, ask you. So we'll put the link for that down in the description. Of course, if I assume people can just DM you if yeah. they have questions. Perfect. So all that stuff will be in the description. Uh, we'll get Ben's Instagram down there. So you'll get the reels and you can DM him with questions for, for the seminar. Um, now one more question before we wrap this up. What's next for you? Like three, five years, like what you want to go back into the restaurant? You want to keep doing real estate? What you got? What's your plans? I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with real estate for now. Um, goal being to uh, really just see where it takes me and enjoy it while I, while I'm doing it. Fair enough. Can't argue with that. Well, we've been talking for a little while. Only some of it got recorded because I'm an idiot. No, I'm just kidding. We only missed, I think we only missed about the first 10 minutes or so, but it was great to have you on. Really appreciate it. Uh, Learned a lot. Obviously, if, like I said before, if you have questions, feel free to, I'm volunteering you right now. Feel free to DM Ben and yeah, wish you the best of luck. Thanks, man. Great talking to you. You too. Have a good one. With that, we'll see you guys next time. Peace.